This is the Discuss Metal Podcast with Luke Easter. Hosted by Dan Terry, presented by DiscussMetal.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Discuss Metal Podcast. I have a really fun conversation that we're about to have. I've got Luke Easter sitting here in front of me on my laptop screen. And, uh, you know, we can't, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't fly out to see him because, you know, traveling's not good right now. <laughs> and, um, no, I think, I think this is going to be a really fun conversation. And, uh, Luke Easter, uh, formerly of tourniquet, um, you know, and is now branching out on his own and well, not now, actually he put a solo record out in 2018 and, um, he's been, he's been active since then. So, uh, how are you doing tonight, Luke? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So part of the part of the reason why I reached out to you to do an interview was, um, you know, you'd had the you you had the solo record out uh, for a couple years now, or a year, maybe a year and a half, two years. We'll just say two years. Year make it yeah. easy. Yeah. Um, if we round up, but uh, no, one of the reasons I wanted to get into it is I, I just. Uh, I don't get to do interviews with people that have had as long of a career as you have. And, um, I just wanted to get some perspective on, you know, changes in changes in music, obviously, um, from the, from the early nineties all the way up until now, how much stuff has actually changed. And also just to kind of get, uh, maybe, maybe not autobiographical, but just, uh, kind of get your perspective on, on, on a few things. Um, so to start off, I guess, uh, the big question would be, um, you know, what, what got you into music, um, originally? And of course I know everyone's into music, you know, <laughs> to some degree, but, uh, what was it for you that made music your, um, your passion? Like the thing that, the, the thing that, that, that would be more important to you than anything else? Um, that's a tough one. I mean, I've, I've always enjoyed it. I've always loved singing. Um, it's far back. I mean, I think the first time I sang in public, I was four. Um, I started kindergarten early, uh, and I went to a small Christian school in the Bay area and, uh, the music teacher figured out that this four-year-old kid could sing on pitch. And so if there was, you know, chapel and there was going to be some sort of, you know, solo or whatever in chapel. Um, I got them a lot of the time. Uh, and I recall being told when I got a little bit older that there were people that would actually, uh, make it a point like parents and whatnot that would make a point to show up for chapel if they found out that I was singing when I was a little kid. Um, so, I mean, those, that's like my, my earliest memories of, of music, but I've just always been, borderline obsessed with, with music. I mean, when I was little, it was my, my Sesame street records. And then from there it was, you know, whatever, uh, you know, church music my parents had on, on vinyl at the time. And then on up to, to now, you know, which is kind of all over the map, uh, you know, metal pop, you know, whatever, if it's got a hook and you can, you can hum it, strum it on a guitar, then, then I'm in, I love it. Um, it's, it's like oxygen for me. I'm, I'm not super prolific. I don't want to make myself sound like I'm some sort of, you know, musical savant, but, um, 
my my wheels are constantly turning i'm constantly dissecting other people's songs and i'm listening to records and just everything i do at some point leads back to to music that's awesome and, and so like i guess yeah i mean with you having an experience at, at you know f- four years old you know <laughs> singing um i think that's that that's cool and it's always interesting to me to hear, you know, somebody starts off early, they get into music and there's kind of always this push, you know, cause there, there's a lot of people out there that are music fans, you know? Um, but what, what is the step? I guess these are hard questions. I'm just throwing all my hard ones out at the beginning of the interview because, you know, keep everybody awake. But, uh, what is it, what is it that, that would cause you to go from being somebody that enjoys something to actually wanting to create it? Or do you think that's a natural progression? Um, again, it's another tough one. I think some of it is, is just that desire to see if you can do it and do something that's as cool as, as what you've heard. I think some of it is, um, a little bit arrogant. You know, you, you hear something, you go, well, I could do that. Or, Oh, I could do, I could do better than that. Uh, and then at some point you either back down or it's time to put up or shut up, you know? Um, I'm not competitive in you know, like, you know, I, I don't understand sports. I don't understand, you know, trying to jockey for a, you know, a, a promotion at work or something. Um, and it's, it's similar with music. I mean, every, whenever we've played out and it's, you know, some, you know, whatever, whether it's a local show or, or, you know, a big, you know, festival thing. Um, it's never been a, a, an idea of, you know, trying to one up whoever is playing before or after you, but it's definitely been a thing of let's leave as little as possible for whoever's coming up next. Let's just, uh, you know, do our best to obliterate everybody that's here. And I think that in, in kind of a holistic sense, it's the same way when I think just about music, in general, I'm, I'm not competing with anybody. I'm not trying to be anybody. I'm not trying to steal anybody's audience or anything. But whatever I do, I want to make sure that people, you know, hear it and go, you know, whether they love it or not, go, wow, that was, you know, that was Luke Easter. Yeah. And that's actually something that I, that I really enjoy is that, you know, I, cause I listened to your solo record, um, more recently, uh, to be honest, I didn't even know that it was a thing until more recently. And, uh, whenever I listened to it, one of the things that struck me the most is, is you can always tell it's you singing, even though like that it's not, um, stylistically it's, 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 it's night and day from tourniquet, you know, whereas that in that band, you were very aggressive, you know, whereas, you know, with your, with your solo music, it's been more, um, for lack of a better word, fun, <laughs> you, you know, and, and like not as, um, I don't want to say mean spirited cause I don't think that it's mean spirited just because you had sang metal before, you know, but, um, but the difference in the aggression, but I think it's, I think it's really cool how you have a very distinct voice that you have carved out, you know, throughout your career. And, um, was that always something natural or, or like, do you, do you always feel like you had your own voice or is that something you just had to develop? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. You, you tend to emulate the people that you listen to. Um, I grew up, I mean, musically speaking, I grew up in the eighties, uh, hair bands, the, the, you know, the whole bit. I'm a huge Bon Jovi fan. Uh, 
and I imagine a lot of that comes through uh, on the pop disaster. Yeah, um, absolutely. But a lot of it, I mean, it, the first band I ever sang in, uh, I was in that band. If, if I'm remembering correctly, I was in that band almost a month before I sang a note. Yeah. Uh, because partly because I was scared and didn't think I could pull it off. I'd never sung in a band before. Uh, but I figured if I could get them to write with me and, and show that I, you know, I, and I was a horrible songwriter at that point. I don't even, I, I wouldn't say I'm a good songwriter now. I'm, I'm capable. Uh, but I was like abysmal, uh, when I was 19. Um, but I figured if we at least were working together as a unit like that, and then I was, you know, giving a voice to what we had come up with, that I would have a better shot at, at having a spot. Um, and part of that was because I was scared that if we just kept doing covers, I was just going to mimic whatever singer I was covering at the time. Whereas if I wrote something over something that they came up with musically, just by virtue of the fact that it was something different, it was going to sound like me. Uh, and so that's kind of how I started carving out, you know, kind of sort of my own sound. Um, so I think if, if I'm being perfectly honest in, in when I was doing the metal stuff, I'm, you know, there was some Bon Jovi people that know me well would be like, Oh, I heard that one song. There's that one little line did a Bon Jovi <laughs> thing. Like, yeah, I kind of did. Um, but I think there's a lot of Mustaine. I think there was a lot of, of Hetfield and some of that's just because, I mean, when I did the, uh, the vanishing lessons record, uh, the black album was, was ubiquitous. It was, it was everywhere. And so it was just perfectly natural to go, Oh, that's how Metallica is doing it. I'll just kind of, you know, find that kind of groove and, and go for it. Um, but it's like a never ending thing. You know, you, you kind of have this idea of what you want to sound like, and then there's what you actually sound like. And you're constantly, I'm sure it's the same with guitar players and, and, and drummers. Everybody's constantly trying to refine what they do. And I think if you get, if you get complacent, think that, yes, this is my thing. And this is exactly how I do it every night. Then that's the beginning of the end because you're not pushing yourself anymore. And it, it stops being interesting for, for you and for whoever's listening. Yeah, totally. And, you know, uh, musicians that constantly push themselves can have a more diverse career, you know, without you always just being, you know, the same thing over and over and over and over again. You know, there, there aren't a lot of, there aren't a lot of musicians in bands that have gotten away with it. Um, somehow Slayer got away with it. Um, always just, you know, doing the same thing constantly, but, um, I guess they just got so good at what they do that, you know, they, (laughs) people uh, responded to it. I heard Joe Elliott say one time that uh, ACDC really only has that one song, but it's yeah. a really good song, you know? So yeah, back to your Slayer thing. It, it doesn't matter that Slayer kind of became this one thing and Slayer only did this. They did it so well. And no matter how they did it or how many times they did it, it was still just so uh, breathtaking at how well they did it that you didn't care that, you know, this is the same blast beat from the last song. Well, it doesn't matter. It's still really cool. Let's go. Right. Still Slayer. Yeah. And ACDC is an excellent example as well. Yeah. Cause it's, it's pretty much the exact same, uh, conversation. And, um, so how many, how many bands did you, were you in before, uh, before joining, uh, joining tourniquet? I played bass in a garage band with some friends I grew up with and went right from that to singing in a 
one step up from a garage band uh, in the South Bay. I did a handful of shows over you know two or three years and went right from that to playing for Tourniquet. So I'd only wow. sung in one other band. Oh, wow. Um, and I, I've always wondered your perspective on this, like what it's like to step into a band that's already established, um, you know, ha- you know, has three records out and a fan base and all, like, um, like what type, what type of pressure was that for? I mean, did you, did you feel pressured that like you had something that you had to live up to or. Once I found out that I didn't have to try and sing it exactly like the record that I could, you know, as long as the melodies were the same and I, you know, that I was singing the song as it was written, um, that I could kind of put my own stamp on it. Like I didn't have to do the high falsetto parts on the the stuff from stop the bleeding. Thank God. Um, once, once, once we'd worked that out and I knew that, that, you know, it was kind of a, a blank canvas, uh, then it stopped being quite so daunting. And then the main thing was just remembering all the words. Um, cause from audition to opening night was roughly two weeks. Oh my goodness. So they just, they, they needed you in and going like hitting the ground running, so a, to speak. They had a tour booked. They were all ready to go and it was getting down to the wire. They didn't have a singer. Um, from what I understand, it was down to me and one other guy and I kind of, they got my tape at the 11th hour and uh, they had pretty much almost settled on this other guy. And then they got my tape and they called me up. I went down to LA, uh, did the audition, uh, drove home. And I'd only been home about an hour. I got a phone call. Hey, you're the guy. Can you be back down here? You know, this weekend we need to rehearse. And then we start the tour. I'm like, um, yeah, I guess I'll quit my job and be down there. Whenever you went. So, so, okay. So you go in, you, you send them a demo tape basically of you uh what was the tape was it just you singing songs or specifically tourniquet songs or uh you know what actually my audition tape had zero tourniquet songs it was two originals by my old band uh and then because i needed something to showcase that i could sing a little bit higher uh a friend of mine and i did a quick actually chris the guy that played mostly guitars on pop disaster and produced it played on the demo that i sent to tourniquet okay um but I did a cover of Lady uh, from Striper so that I could showcase that I had a little bit, of, you know, a little bit of the top end that wasn't on the stuff that uh, that I had demoed out on the other songs. So were you familiar with Tourniquet prior to? I mean, I, w- I would yeah. assume so, obviously, but you, know, yeah. you never know. People apply to one ads all the time and, you know, <laughs> no. uh, don't actually know what they're getting into. I knew who they were um, six months before I joined the band. I had actually run into uh, Gary at the NAM show in Anaheim. And uh, I had heard that guy was out um, and asked, you know, Gary, you know, so what does that mean? Are you going to be the singer now? He's like, Oh no, I'm not going to be the singer. We're going to find somebody else. I'm like, Oh, okay. And literally like six weeks later, um, I was, you know, I'd come to the end of my, my rope with my, my my local band. And my attitude was, I'm either going to, I'm either good enough to go to the next level or I need to cut my hair and go to school. Uh, (laughs) and so I was trying to figure out what to do. And, Brian Gray from uh, The Blamed. I've, I've known him for a long, long time. He was in a he was in a local band at the time called Rocks and Pink Cement. Uh, and his band and my old band used to play together, you know, occasionally. And um, I don't even remember why I was talking to him about it, but I told him that you know I I needed to make a move, and he's like, "You should 
you should try out for tourniquet. I'm like, nah, I, I, I do this like commercial, you know, hard rock stuff. He's like, no, you could totally do it. I'm like, nah, I don't think so. He's like, here's Victor's number. Call him up. (laughs) So called him, got an address, sent a tape. Then, you know, here we are now. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I watched recently a, um, I think it was either Cornerstone 93 or 94. And whenever I'm watching like a tourniquet live video, I'm usually like any, anything early nineties, I'm expecting it to be, um, guy. And then I was so shocked. I, and I think this was 93 and that's why I was so shocked because I think it was like right after pathogenic had come out. Right. Um, and I was super surprised to see you jump up and start singing. Cause I was like, Oh, I didn't even know he was in the band that year, you know, like, yep. and, uh, and so that was really interesting seeing, seeing the old tourniquet songs performed by you. Um, I mean, obviously CDs were re-released later on and they had live versions of, of, you know, a lot of those songs. And, um, so it was always, it was always fun hearing those versions of the songs. Um, because I mean, in essence, they're the same song, but you know, you always kind of added your own personal vibe to it. And, um, and so that, that was always a lot of fun for me, but, uh, that was, that, that show looked, uh, looked crazy. I, I unfortunately didn't make it to Cornerstone until I was much older because I'm not going to lie. I mean, I've been listening, I, I've been listening to tourniquet since I was like a little kid, you know, like I've still got vanishing lessons on cassette somewhere behind me. You know, it was always fun to go back and watch those videos and just kind of get what the vibe was like back in the nineties where, you know, bands were like, it was actually an event, <laughs> you know, to go see a band. Yeah. Uh, I feel like we take it for granted now because we can just pull it up on YouTube and watch it. Or, <laughs> or my first cornerstone. I mean, my, the first cornerstone I played was the first cornerstone I attended. I'd never been, um, and when I got there, nobody had any idea who I was. Um, I walked around all you know, all morning. You know, all or, I forget what time we got there. We got there quite a while before uh, the show. We needed to set up merch and you know just make sure that everything was dialed. Um, but nobody had any idea who I was. Um, and then we started the show and, and that whole tour, the, the, the first run we did for, for pathogenic tour, uh, the four of them would go out and they would start playing, you know, the, the, the title track. And, um, I didn't come out until I started singing the, you know, when red is green and green is gray, you know, part on the, the bridge for pathogenic, uh, you know, so really up until, you know, probably 10 minutes into the show, by the time the intro tape, you know, played and the band, you know, vamped and, and then started playing, nobody had any idea who I was. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very different than today where, like you said, you just pull it up on YouTube and go, oh, it's that guy. Oh, this is going to suck. But uh, <laughs> I didn't say that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Some people would. Well, what's interesting is that, like, you go, you know, you, you joined the band right after Pathogenic came out, and you're you're basically like, like you were saying, you you played commercial hard rock, you know, before that, yeah. and you've got like, I mean, Pathogenic probably being the heavy one of the heaviest tourniquet albums to date when it came out was, you know, like so vastly different than what you were like. Did you ever think like, oh man, what have I gotten myself into, or is this is this going to be too hard, or you know, am I going to be able to keep up with it, or was it just kind of like eh, I'll just sing guys' parts and do my own once thing when I, we write a new record? Once I wrapped my head around how I was going to do it at the audition, I'm trying to remember what the audition songs were. I think we did Dogs Breakfast, uh, Phantom Limb, uh, 
Test for Leprosy, I want to say Arc of Suffering. I think those were the four. So once I kind of got comfortable with those four and figured out how I was going to do those in the audition, um, then I kind of had an idea of how to approach the rest of it. Um, cause once they told me I was in, like I said, I had about a week or so to, to learn all the songs. And so I basically was just like, okay, they liked how that, they liked that voice for that song. I'm just going to try and plug that into everywhere that's in that kind of register. Uh, and I mean, obviously I have a very different voice than, than guy does. Somebody, uh, told me recently that they would describe the difference as being like, uh, the difference between Joey Belladonna and John Bush, uh, when, when John took over in Anthrax. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, they're both capable singers, but, you know, Joey's got more of a, you know, classic metal, power metal, you know, ah, kind of thing. And, and John is a more, you know, guttural throaty, uh, kind of thing. Um, I can't sing. I mean, I can, it, in certain registers, if I push, I can sing really high and clean, similar to what Guy would do. Uh, I don't have, um, I don't have quite the range in terms of falsetto uh, as Guy does. He he can he can hit some stuff in his falsetto that that would kill me if I tried. Sure. Um, but I can do all of the really throaty, you know, more guttural things. Um, and in my opinion, it's got a little bit more oomph to it because it's a more natural feeling uh, sound uh, for me, whereas it, it does seem like he's uh, uh, doing a character. And that, that's not a put down, you know, at all. It's just, you know, the, we have we have different voices. Um, so, yeah, once once it was made clear that they wanted me to put my spin on them, you know, be you know, be true to the song, but they didn't want me to be guy. They wanted me to be me. Uh, it made it easier to kind of reinterpret them. And, you know, I, I did, I tried to be true to what guy had done. Cause I, I was, I was a fan before I was ever in the band. I owned the first three records. Uh, and again, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll bring up Chris. Uh, Chris turned me on to tourniquet in the first place. You know, he found them. And so I, you know, I vividly remember, sitting in Chris's bedroom, listening to stop the bleeding on a cassette and just tripping out, you know, who is this band? You know, these guys are awesome. Um, you know, so to go from 91 to 93 and suddenly I'm playing with those guys was, you know, it was kind of mind blowing. Was being in a Christian metal band, um, what you expected it to be or was it, um, did it kind of subvert your expectations at all of like what that was going to be like on the road playing to, you know, different types of crowds? Cause I mean, I'm sure there were, I'm sure there were plenty of like Christian events, but there's no Christian metal band in the world that just wants to play Christian events, you know? No. Um, you know what? I had no preconceptions. I was just happy to play. Um, so to me playing a church was the same as playing a, a bar or, you know, playing a festival, you know, as long as there were people there, um, especially early on, it, it was a lot harder to, uh, you know, turn it on and kind of fake it. You know, if, if there weren't enough people, I fed more off of the energy. Uh, I still do. I mean, if there's a bigger crowd, it, uh, it makes the job easier. You don't have to work as hard to, to connect. Um, but that was my main thing is as long as there's people here, I can do this. I don't care, you know, where it is. Uh, and to be honest, I mean, in, in earlier shows like that, 
the churches by and large uh, were, were better run. You knew you were going to have better catering and uh, you might have access to a shower. Whereas if you're playing a club, you know, they probably ignored your rider. There might be a pizza, there might be some coffee, but otherwise, you know, you're, you're kind of on your own until you get to, you know, wherever your next stop is where you can actually find a shower and a good meal, hopefully sleep. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's the key is, uh, is, is at least whoever's driving, gets some sleep, right? <laughs> oh, that was brutal. That, that was, I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that I started out old school. I did my first record on two inch tape. I did my first tour in a van. Um, you know, so whatever dues I didn't pay playing clubs for years and years, you know, working my way up. Um, I think I made up for them in endless drives for my first couple of tours. Yeah, I mean, it's so weird, too, thinking of, like, having to look at maps, you know, to, oh, to figure yeah. out where you're going to go and having to call on pay phones yeah. and stuff. <laughs> how did we function? Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't have any idea how to read a map anymore. Yeah, no way. Like, if it's not turn-by-turn turn directions, I'm like, well, I guess I'm not going there. You know? Yeah. Like, it's just... and. uh but yeah, so going going back to that to that first record you did with the band Vanishing Lessons, what I thought was really interesting is how you know they went from being predominantly a thrash type of band, um, sometimes even heavier than that in places. Um, I, I always just think about those blasts and pathogenic. I'm like, oh, this is just like really extreme for Tourniquet, you know? Like, yeah. but um, you know, when you went into Vanishing Lessons, uh, we jokingly, uh, me and my friends would always refer to that as Tourniquet's Black Album, you know, yeah. in, in the sense that you guys were going for, it's still metal because you can't listen to a song like like the song Vanishing Lessons and think it's anything but, um, but it definitely had that stronger um, hard rock bass, a lot of blues, you know, influence in there and... Um, you know, was what was that like for you creatively? I guess I, I I don't really know how much creative input you had on the on the writing of the music, but um, that seemed to me to kind of be your way to finally shine instead of having to go out and sing a record that you didn't record. Yeah, I didn't have any involvement in the writing um, for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, some of it was just because you know I was new, I was an unknown quantity. Uh, but some of it was just because of the way that things were with uh, the, our deal at the time uh, it didn't make sense. Sure. Um, so I, I didn't write. Uh, we did a ton of pre-production for it, um, which I later found out was partly because our producer was uh, was scared that I, I you know, because I'd never done any recording. I'd never, you know, I, that that was not an experience that I'd had yet. So he was concerned about whether or not I was going to be able to deliver in the studio. Uh, and the record company was a little bit concerned also because, okay, he went out and sang, you know, for the, the tour for the last record. Can he actually, you know, pull it off here? Or at least that's, that's some of what was, you know, expressed to me at the time. Um, so we did a ton of pre-production. Uh, we actually did a two song demo with our producer, uh, Jim Ferracci, uh, we did a demo of Vanishing Lessons, and we did a demo of, uh, I forget what the other one was, but uh, that put the record company at ease, and they pressed copies to give to the sales crew so that they could go out and pre-sell the record and say, look, Tourniquet is you know, still alive, you know, they have a singer, and you know, look, they're good. Uh, in terms of the, the shift stylistically, um, 
some of it, like you mentioned the black album, I think a lot of it was because, uh, that record was so, uh, game changing for our genre. Uh, I think everybody kind of made that left turn. It was like, Oh, let's try and, you know, balance out being really commercial, but still trying to be heavy. Uh, but I think some of it is because, um, uh, I was a little bit more versatile and, and I, I'm, I'm treading lightly. I don't want to. I don't want to diminish any of what Guy did, and I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, breaking my arm and, and well, saying you, that I'm. You're two. You know, you're two different so dudes. Impressive. You know, yep. it's fun. Very different. Yeah. And there were there were things that they would throw at me that I would just say, yeah, okay, and I'd roll with it and 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 deliver. That um, you know, Guy as a singer either wouldn't have been comfortable with or just wouldn't have been able to do it. So they had done all of these interesting, cool things with guy. And now they had a completely different, uh, palette that they could work with. And it was like, well, let's try this. Well, let's try that. Let's do this other thing. Um, so I, th- I think vanishing lessons is kind of the culmination of that. We had really gone as far as we could go at the time in terms of being, you know, really, really heavy. Uh, cause like you pointed out, vanishing lessons is, is pretty, or uh, pathogenic was really extreme. Um, and so we didn't quite, you know, bounce back to the opposite extreme, but we kind of found a, a middle lane where we could still be heavy and still be, you know, metal slash hard rock, but also, uh, you know, be a little bit more commercial, maybe have a little bit more appeal outside of uh, the metal fans. Um, and, I, and I think it worked for us. I mean, we had... We, we got really good airplay at rock radio and at, at metal radio, uh, specifically on the Christian side. But we also started getting some notice, you know, from the, the mainstream uh, press. Uh, a lot of that groundwork had been laid, you know, with Pathogenic and with us being on Metal Blade or having a distribution agreement with Metal Blade. Uh, but then when we, we dropped Vanishing Lessons, you know, people kind of took notice because it the easy play would have been to just make, you know, pathogenic two. And right. instead we're like, well, let's do this stylistic shift and, and, you know, show them a whole other side. So it was, it was kind of a gamble, but I think it paid off. I, I had fun. I, I, it was, it was great. Yeah. I mean, it definitely worked because I think the combination of playing a more accessible, uh, hard, more hard rock based sound, plus your voice, really did future proof the band in a way you know because you know with guy you know he's he's singing falsettos and like that's really cool you know when stop the bleeding comes out because they weren't the only band doing that if i mean if you're all the way in 1994 and your new record has you know high pitch falsetto vocals which i mean granted guy did kind of calm down on that too as the as the band went but um you know to with with your voice, it definitely gave more of that '90s hard rock vibe that everybody was looking for, like that edgy vibe. Because you were able to, because if you go heavier than Pathogenic, then you're just screaming the whole time. Yeah, because it doesn't make sense to sing, you know. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're playing songs that you can actually, like you said earlier in the interview, you know. If, if, if it can be sung and hummed and and str- and strummed on a guitar, 
you know, um, that, that, that's what is going to appeal to the mass amount of people and the metal fans still get their riffs. They still get their solos, you know, and all of that. But, uh, I think I, I almost, I almost think you're underselling it in how much of a future proofing your addition to the band actually was in that when I was a kid, you know, I listened to pathogenic and I, I listened to, um, psychosurgery and all that. And, I thought that was cool, but it sounded old to me, you know, as a kid, because it's just like, oh, it's it's old, it's kind of thin, it's like really fast guitars and stuff. Um, as a kid, I'm looking for something that's going to remind me of Inner Sandman or you know right. something like that. So in that sense, that record really, um, really was was influential to me as far as being being a metal fan. Uh, the following record, uh, Crawl to China, was even more so. In the sense of, um, I don't really have any way. I I hope I don't you don't find this offensive, but I, I always refer to that record as the Wackadoo record because there's okay. it's it's got that because it, it has the same combination of hard rock songs and metal songs, just like Vanishing Lessons had. Um, some of the songs are even a, a, a little bit hookier, but how just incredibly insane some of the uh, lyrical concepts are how just just crazy it, it it invokes uh it invokes the old tourniquet in the sense that it you just never had any idea like what a song was going to be about um you know one song's about imaginary friends one song's about bats <laughs> one song's about you know uh, i played that for my wife earlier tonight when i was cooking dinner and she, <laughs> she got a pretty big kick out of it bats yeah the kids actually we'd pull that out and do that while we'd play acoustic shows and and people would actually sing along it was always fun yeah um crawl for whatever reason kind of gets a bad rap with some people and i don't think it's fair um i know that i've heard over the years from people who think that that was um we were signed to a you know quote-unquote nashville label at the time right Uh, and so a lot of people think oh that was your ccm record and they made you you know do that nobody made us do anything you know, that's, that's, that was one of the very cool things about being, being part of that band. Um, nobody ever made us do anything. Um, I get why people would think that because, you know, we, we, in the interim between vanishing and crawl, we, you know, we did carry the wounded, uh, which was, you know, even more commercial than vanishing lessons. I mean, we even had a piano ballad on there. Yeah. Uh, and we followed that up, uh, with, um, collected works and collected works had you know what at the time were probably the two heaviest songs we'd ever done you know perfect night for hanging and hand trembler and we had given every indication that that's the direction we were going to take on the next record so people were super stoked and then crawl comes out and it's decidedly not uh, those (laughs) two songs right um I still think there's a lot of heavy moments on that record. I mean, uh, enveloped in Python is, is, is pretty heavy. Um, but it, it's one of those things, you know, we, we had signed, we'd signed with a smaller label, uh, after we left frontline and then the dub awards happened. And that was the year that like, uh, Jesus freaks and DC talk and jars of clay, all those guys swept. And so suddenly, uh, Nashville's freaking out because they're like, wait a minute, this edgier, you know, weirder music. It's not just Amy and Michael W. Smith anymore. We got to, we need to figure this out. So everybody wanted a, a rock band. And so 
uh, Diadem, which was part of EMI, uh, bought our contract from this indie label that we had signed with out of uh, LA. And, um, you know, they were more old school. That was the first time we had a stylist on a, a photo shoot. That was the first time they like, you know, we didn't just have some friend shoot us. They actually flew a photographer, you know, and the stylist dude out from Nashville to take pictures. Uh, you know, so it was all these, these new things. Um, but the, the, the thing that we'd never encountered before is the, one of the, the higher ups at the label wanted demos so that he knew what the record was going to sound like. Um, they hadn't done demos since they, you know, recorded stuff for stop the bleeding. Everything was always, we wrote songs and we made a record and then we put the record out. Right. So, you know, I mean, the, the, the two tracks that we did for, you know, vanishing lessons, you know, were an anomaly. That was, it was a test to see if I could pull it off, but it was also a way of giving the sales team a way to go out and, and sell that record. Uh, so they told us they wanted demos and it ended up with Ted and Aaron and me in Ted's apartment with a four track with unfinished songs and the two of them on acoustic guitars and, you know, kind of faking it, you know, the, the songs weren't, they, they weren't even full lyrics. I, mean, I don't, I don't think anything that we sent ended up actually being on the record. They were just ideas and we sent two or three of those. And I think it kind of got the point across that, you know, you signed us, let us be us. So by the time we got into the studio, we just had this, you know, completely different thing going on. Um, and it, it, it became Carl to China. I mean, we, we, every song on that record has a different guitar sound. Um, in some ways I'm, I'm more proud of that record than any of the other records, just because it's just so, um, it's so diverse for us. You know, especially at that time, it's it's just kind of all over the place. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's it's one of those records that you know, the very first. It's one of those records that I could. I really wish I could go back in time and re-experience the first time that I listened to it because um, I had no idea what I was going to hear next. You know, you you get through a song. It's got its own vibe. It's got its own um, kind of identity, and then you move on to a next song, and you're in a you're on a totally different planet. Uh, you know, and that, that, that's really different. And, um, you know, and granted I was younger. So when I heard it, you know, there's some songs that I was like, this is awesome. And then some songs made me mad because they were too soft and, you know, stuff like that. Cause that's just how kids think. And, um, and some, and some adults, there's a ton of people that hate bats and, and I get it, but I make no apologies for that song. It was fun. Yeah, I'm happy that it exists because, you know, like I said, I played it while I was making dinner and my wife got a kick out of it and my, my kids thought it was funny, you know, so like it's, uh, it made them happy, it, you know, yeah. <laughs> and that's, you know, I can't, uh, I can't really complain about that, not, not as an adult. And, um, and actually Bats is actually one of my favorite songs on the record just because again, it's just so out of nowhere and, 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 and it's, it's funny, but not like funny, like, oh, it's funny because it's so bad. It's just like the content is, is, is hilarious. And the, you know, yeah, yeah, definitely. That was a transitional record too, in more ways than just the obvious that, you know, stylistically it was kind of all over the place. That was kind of a, a, a bridge in a lot of ways from uh, the the tourniquet that was when it was still, you know, Gary and Victor and, and Ted and then, you know, Aaron and me uh, into 
um, what I'll call, I guess, the unholy trinity of, of Ted and Aaron and me. Right. Uh, was kind of, you know, the next couple records was just the three of us. Um, and so I think that in some ways that record was like a palate cleanser because it kind of cleared the decks uh, of whatever uh, ideas were still floating in the, the ether from what was and took a very, you know, decided shift into uh, what it became, which was, you know, uh, it, things got heavier, but it became more and more. Um, uh, and again, I, I want I'm treading lightly because I don't want to sound negative about it, but um, it became more and more TED driven as opposed to band driven. I mean, that one for sure did have a lot more of, of, of Ted on it than it did of Aaron and me. But there was still a lot of, you know, it was, it was more of a band record in terms of Aaron and I wrote three songs, Ted wrote the rest, and then we kind of fleshed it all out together, as opposed to, as we went down the line, uh, a lot of stuff would already be thought out, fleshed out, and arranged, and we would show up and play. And it's really interesting, too, um, which, I, speaking of that record, uh, the song The Telltale Heart, that is probably one of the heavier songs, and it's just... Uh, I, I still can never get over that whenever it just goes into that like the, the dun, 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 dun like it's it sounded so heavy and so modern in like so, such stark contrast to uh to everything else I remember just being like holy crap like <laughs> that that one blew me away um I love that I love the way that song starts that, that one was Aaron Aaron and I both but especially Aaron he he got me into them but the the first corn record had come out right before we recorded that record. So that, that song, uh, especially that riff, uh, probably owes a lot to, to corn. Yeah, I can hear that. And it's funny you say that I wouldn't have made that connection beforehand, but now, now I probably, I can't unhear it now that I'm thinking about it. Aaron took me to a corn show somewhere down in, in LA. Uh, it was right before it, it uh, life is peachy came out the week after, and I, that was the, that was legitly the first time I was ever scared for my own safety at a show <laughs> and it started at the stage. And I mean, this is, you know, early, early corn. This is when they're still kind of underground. Right. The st- it was like in this big, it wasn't quite arena size, but it wasn't a theater. It probably had probably held like two or 3000 people, maybe 2000 people, but the pit started at the stage and went like three quarters of the way back to the front of house. And we're like standing there holding onto the barricade next to the, the, the mixing desk. <laughs> That's <laughs> and, crazy. And hoping, well, I, I won't speak for Aaron, but uh, I was uh, hoping that we were not going to die. <laughs> you got to find awesome. that safe spot, you know? It was awesome. I cut my teeth on like on bands. Like as I got older, I, I started listening to stuff like Zayo and, you know, like uh, Living Sacrifice and bands like that. And so they, uh, those pits were, I had a very similar experience. My first, my, you know, going to my first hardcore show where I was like, where, where's the place where people stand where they don't die? Like where, where's the safe zone? And I guess it's like, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Backstage or, uh, that's why I became a podcaster. So I can just go backstage instead of having to get killed in the pits. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, that's really interesting. I, I, yeah, I would have never, I would have never really thought it, corn influence because i you know i as a horrible as a horrible music fan i put corn in one box i put tourniquet in another box i put you know and uh it's always fun to kind of see um see those influences in places that you really wouldn't expect um and so you guys 
I mean, it, the next record, obviously, um, even heavier, you know, um, yeah. like, and everybody like, calls uh, it like a back to a back to basics kind of record, even though if you really listen to it, it doesn't really sound like the old, old tourniquet records. Um, and I think that was, that was a good thing. <laughs> yeah. We, we consciously, when we went into microscopic, you know, we talking amongst ourselves, you know, we all kind of decided we, I want to make a really heavy record. We should make a, you know, again, not like a pathogenic part two, but we should go back in more of that kind of aggressive, uh, direction, you know, partly just because we felt like it was time we'd done, you know, a string of, you know, quote unquote, mellower records. Um, but also just artistically, it felt right. Like, you know, okay, we've kind of mined that vein. Let's, let's go back to, you know, what we made our name with. Um, but you're right. I mean, it's still, uh, especially in light of what, you know, the, the records that came directly before it, it was, you know, extremely heavy, but on it, that, that's probably when more of the proggy type stuff started, you know, really coming to the fore, you know, the flute and the bazooki and, and stuff like that. And, you know, just some of the, the, the weirdness in with all the heaviness more so than, than on previous records. Was that challenging for you? I know, like, vocally, there's a lot of weird stuff going on on Microscopic. Um, just, you know, and I know it's a, it's a combination of you, um, you know, and Aaron, you know. But was that, was that like, more challenging to kind of have to go less from, like, less of the sing-songy into more of the aggressive vocal? Or was that just, like, you're ready for it? Um, it's kind of both. I mean, when you're, when you're doing the record, it, you're not singing it straight through like you would in a performance. Right. So you know, we'd kind of block it out, you know, let, let's do this song. Do we have any other songs that have really, you know, heavy, you know, raspy gruff parts that I have to do? Let, let's knock all those out first. Okay. Do we have clean vocals? Okay. Let's pull those up. Let's do all those parts. Let's throw harmonies, you know, so, um, you're, you're not, you know, burning yourself out. Um, but there were parts that were more challenging, like the, uh, the acapella part at the end of, uh, besprinkled. Um, that was, I, I retract that part like three or four times in, in, in completely different sessions. I would think that I was done and then we'd go back the next you know, day and, and Ted and Bill would be like, uh, yeah, there's this little thing. that we don't, can we do it again? And because, it's you know such a quiet breathy vocal and because there's almost nothing else going on um it has to be as perfect as you can get it this is this is pre-auto tune this is you know that one we recorded on adat so there was like no way it had you know it, it had to, the performance had to be as perfect as possible so um in in that regard yeah it was really demanding really challenging and i would imagine that there that there were it would have been demanding too translating into a live setting. Like, I don't know how, like, cause I mean, I, I've sang in bands before, but like all of my songs have ever only been like two to three minutes long, you know? So like getting through a song like Gilgamesh live, I mean, my God, like, how do you, how, how do you pace yourself, you know, to, to get, the, and, and as, as the records go on, the songs get even longer. It's weird. There's some cues that I, I would take off of the drums. I would just remember that, oh, there's this weird little fill, and then I start singing. And there's other parts where I'd have to like watch Aaron really closely to, to figure out what part we were at so I'd know when to jump in correctly. Um, and actually, uh, was it, it was either 
it was either Tomb of Gilgamesh or Skizix 2, and we did it. Uh, we're, we're playing it in, in Jacksonville, Florida, and I lost my place oh, and no. started. And, you know, to, to their, I mean, if everybody's doing their job, then everybody's paying attention. And if something bad like that happens, you know, hopefully everybody will correct and go along with it. Um, but we would refer to that for a long time as the great Jacksonville train wreck. <laughs> oh, um, no. I, I don't know if the audience realized that, that, I had come in, you know, like a minute and a half before I should have. But by the time I got through the section and looked over and saw how horrified Aaron looked and realized (laughs) that the drop sounded a little bit weird for a few measures, I was like, oh, crap, I screwed up, you know. So, yeah, there were nights when it was easier. There was nights when it was harder. And you just kind of you you figure out how to to find your cues. And, and so, yeah, sometimes it was off the bass or uh, off the drums. Sometimes it was off the guitars. Sometimes it was just, I hope, I hope I'm in the right place. Cause I lost count like a minute ago. Yeah. And that's hard. Cause I mean, having to wait a minute and a half, that's like a thousand years when you're standing up yeah. on stage and yeah. you're trying to look interesting, you know, in, in, yeah. the, in the middle of all these long instrumental passages, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I, uh, that just, I mean, my hat's off to you for being able to endure something like that because it's, um, you know, it's all for the love of the performance and everything. But I, I've always thought that during longer segments of songs where I didn't have anything to do, like what you know, should I stand? Should I go get like a bottle of water? Or you know, what, what am what am I supposed to do here? I would hydrate. I think that's when I really got into my shadow boxing phase. Uh, I would try and figure out. You know, I would like I'd try and anticipate which symbol was going to be hit, and then you know basically like throw a punch so that you know i was like punching as that symbol was being hit and it kind of turned it you know it 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 wasn't for long but it kind of turned into a game you know with with uh with ted and me uh or you know i'd you know make faces and try and anticipate and he would try and and fake me out not hit the symbol i thought he was going to hit right so but yeah, you, you figure out whatever you can do to, to not look ridiculous until it's time to sing again. And then hopefully not look ridiculous once you start singing. Well, and after that record came out, it was a pretty long time, I want to say, between that and um, Moth and Rust. Um, yeah, that Microscopic came out in 99 and Moth was 2002, which for us was that was a huge, huge gap at, the, uh, at that point. Little did yeah yeah and that record came out i remember that one got um that was that was during a time where i was transitioning out of like traditional metal and into more of the like hardcore stuff because that's just what everybody was doing that year you know (laughs) um and uh i know i got i remember ordering uh moth and i don't remember if i ordered it from the website or not it's so weird now talking about it in 2020 because you know now i mean midnight a records out i can listen to it immediately you know but i remember i remember waiting for that record and um you know and all all the stuff that we talked about on microscopic view i mean even more so you know uh longer songs uh more more prog elements you know a a hilarious song about a giant squid that hadn't been discovered yet then like a year later it was discovered Uh yeah Well, I mean, it had been discovered. People knew it existed. I mean, hence the the song and the name. But, right. but yeah, nobody had seen one in, like, you know, like 50 years, 100 years. Right. Yeah, we, we 
we were quite happy once somebody actually found an Architeuthis in the wild. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that. I don't remember what show I was watching. I think it was um, it was the guy that does River Monsters. I don't know if you watched ever watched that show, but um, it's a guy named Jeremy Wade. Uh, he normally like tracks would track down like weird fish um, in rivers and streams like all over the world. Say so it's a way more interesting show than I'm selling it to be. But um, he did a really interesting um, episode where he was doing like deep sea stuff. And he literally just like okay. went down, went down and found a giant squid. I was like, "Are you serious?" Like, <laughs> and it's funny. It wasn't until that moment that I was like, "Oh, has like do people have seen it?" And my wife, uh, she was like, "Yeah, yeah." I mean, it's it's pretty like common knowledge now. And I was like, "Yeah, but there's this tourniquet song." It just shows, you know, like yeah, I get I get my science from from that from the music I listen to instead of picking That's out funny. a book or you know keeping track of current events. But uh, yeah, that record was. Um, interesting in that because I, I feel like i feel like microscopic on like i consider those records to be you know and even with antiseptic i consider them to be kind of like a trilogy um me and my buddies call it the prog trilogy you know <laughs> and I can um, see that. and you know because they they all followed a common theme i noticed that there 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 seemed to be more repeated themes throughout the record as throughout the records as they went um that just, I don't know, that, that whole, like, dun, 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 I don't know, I don't even know how to, like, I can't hum it, but um, just this, uh, I don't know, if you listen you, to those. Kind of like uh, like movements in a, in a symphonic piece? Yes, yes. They were all, they, they became all over the place. Um, yeah, so you'd hear an overture from something, and then it would pop up as a, you know, an aside in another piece later in the record. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, my co-host Joe would be able to uh, more more accurately articulate that, but um, he's the he's the classically trained musician, and I'm just the meathead that listens to heavy stuff. So, Ted is the the big classical guy, and I was just the meathead that's like, "Hey, I like Bon Jovi." Right. Yeah. You guys here to rock tonight? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh! I I had a brain fart one night and actually said, are you guys ready to rock? And I wanted to die. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to die. Such a cliche. And it's so not what we were about. And and I said it. And the minute I said it, I'm like, Oh, that was bad. And I look over my shoulder and uh, yeah, his, his jaw was sitting on his snare drum. He was like, what did you just do? <laughs> <laughs> we're a, we're a serious metal band here. Yeah. <laughs> I am all family. What? Yeah. You know what though? Even though you said that, even though you said that though, I bet there were still tons of people that were like, "Yeah," oh, oh, so yeah. you know, people were like, oh. you know. But I, I was still mortified because, you know, probably now I wouldn't care, but at the time I was like, "No, we don't do those things. We're not a cliched, you know, whatever. We're we're serious musicians, right? We're a sm- so. smoke machine, laser light show band now." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so you know, with uh, with. Uh, Moth and Rust, that record came out, and then honestly, I kind of just thought Tourniquet was gone after that. So did I. You know, I mean, there were there was a couple times. In, I mean, that came out in 2002. We didn't put out anything else again until 2012. Yeah. Um. You know, and and there was a, a couple times in in that you know eight to ten year gap between doing records where you know it crossed my mind that should I just quit. Yeah, and then I was like, "Well, what am I really quitting? We're quit what? Working. Yeah, quit what? Yeah. yeah." So I guess I'll just, um, I guess I'll just carry on and see what happens. You know, and it's not like we weren't we weren't trying. I mean, um, the industry changed a lot. 
um, the, the deal we were in, uh, the, the terms kind of got changed on us, which was unexpected, but it's, you know, especially at that time isn't, you know, totally unusual. Um, and so then we were like, okay, well, we'll show you, we're going to, we'll go find another deal. And then, you know, things had changed. So no, we couldn't just walk into another deal. Uh, you know, people wanted us to, you know, be, you know, well, what are your attendance numbers? You know, what are your merch numbers? Like, well, we haven't actually done a tour, you know, forever. Like, well, we're not going to sign you if you're not touring, you know, that's too big a gamble for, you know, so which led up to, you know, we finally, you know, uh, Kickstarter happened and, and we used that and that's how we did, uh, antiseptic, uh, but I mean, if that hadn't happened, we, you know, if, if Kickstarter and, and, and crowdsourcing, you know, the funding for a record hadn't happened, we'd, you'd probably still be sitting here wondering, huh, I wonder whatever happened to those guys. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely the boat that I was in. And that's a, that's a crucial 10 years yeah. uh, as far as industry shifting, because you're, you're coming back into a world where the traditional record label doesn't even make sense. No, you know when you're like, well, we've got these fans because I think back then I want to say um, between like 2000, 2006 and you know roughly t- 2012, um, that was when Facebook was still in its infancy. MySpace was around for a period during that time, and um, you know you guys knew you had the fans because you had the you know you had the forums, you had the you know all, all these places places that are like no 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 it's it's an active band and if they put anything out we'll get it you know um, yeah and and so to do a Kickstarter you know is would have been the only thing that made sense in 2012 like i totally i remember i remember helping kickstart it because i was like oh my god they're back it's gonna be awesome you know and like you know kind of kind of jumping back into it um which is so it's so funny to think about that i i it made me that much more thankful i've never taken it for granted you know that that i got to do what i did you know with that band all you know the travel and making records and all the people i've met and and all of that um you know it's it still doesn't seem real sometimes, um, but it felt so good that people rallied and helped us put out that record um, because they, you know, they had no reason to. We hadn't done anything, you know, in so long. Um, but it also was very, uh, is very humbling because by that point, it was kind of a, a who, you know, with with younger people. And, you know, whether they were, uh, you know, industry people or just, you know, people listening to music. There's a huge chunk of, of, of kids that had zero idea who we are. Um, and we were no longer the, the 800 pound gorilla in the room. We were just, you know, some other band trying to, you know, release a record and hoping that people would dig it. Um, you know, and, and honestly, if I'm completely honest, that's been the reality you know, in my opinion, for that band, uh, probably since micro, uh, no, not microscope, probably since Moth, probably since what, what since Moth came out. Um, you know, we, it, we, we had our, our, our heyday in the mid nineties, you know, we, uh, wrote it out into the late nineties and then, uh, you know, it's it's been what it's been it's been you know part nostalgia act and part you know hopefully we're the comeback kids and 
Yeah, maybe I maybe I'm being too too hard, but I mean that's just kind of how it seemed. Yeah, I mean it, it it makes sense to do that though to be the to be the throwback, but also have some new material for the for the fan base to listen to. Yeah. Um, but they also want to hear all the hits, you know, so to speak. Whenever, right. whenever they, whenever they would see you guys play live. So I mean, it's not that different than what you know a band like Iron Maiden is, is still is doing. Um, what Metallica has been doing for the past twenty years, you know, sure. um, you still get that new material, so the, they're able to have that creative outlet because nobody likes playing the same songs forever. Right. Um, but yeah, to have that kind of throwback. Um, was probably good, you know, to have have the nostalgia. Because I remember um, I used to be on this message board called Firestream. I don't even oh, know if it's still around. Some, I heard recently somebody's trying to keep it alive, but I think they just need to shut the door. It's Yeah, because, I mean, I think well, I was What was your on handle on, on Firestream? Oh, it's embarrassing. But uh, it was Cries From My Past, which was based on a... You on, were Cries From My Past. I was, yes. I remember that screen. I was, because I was the... The, the message board dude in that band. I mean, yeah. Ted and Aaron would pop up time to time, but I was the one who was most active and I kind of, you know, headed up that whole, that whole side of things and tried to make sure everybody was behaving and nobody was saying anything about us. It was untrue or unwarranted. Yeah. I remember a lot of that. Cause I mean, I think there was even a whole tourniquet section. Uh, if I remember correctly, um, no, that was, that was a mess. Yeah. I don't want to call anybody a liar, but the guy that started Firestream was pretty fast and loose with the truth. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's a message board. Gossip is part of the deal, you know? Yeah. And so we had lost our hosting and he, he agreed to, t- you know, well, he offered to take us on and let us have our, our space. Um, and then the, you know, not long after we got there, he started telling us, no, you can't do that. This is mine. We're like, well, wait a minute. This is our part of it. Nope. What? <laughs> and then he, he waited for us to go to Europe and then locked us out. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah, I don't remember that guy's name. I I actually still have a Firestream sticker on my Nintendo Wii. Um, that's awesome. That's behind me somewhere that I haven't played in a long time. But um, I would say his name, but I don't want to give him any more attention than I already have. Yeah, I was just being nice. I remember his name. But yeah, it's, <laughs> you know, um, it's, it doesn't matter now in 2020. But, uh, but I it, don't wish Hill, but I'm glad that he's not part of my life anymore. There you go. Um, and you know, the message boards were always funny because I think even my band had a um, had a section there, and then I went off and started my own message board and like took a bunch of people with me, and there was like some drama there. But um, I remember, but you know, I remember that website being like the place you would go, you know. And I never, I'll never forget the very first time I saw a post from Luke Easter, and I was like, oh my god, like. I can't believe that, like, if I wanted to, I could send a message to Luke Easter. You know what I mean? Like, it was because th- there's perception and reality, right? Um, me, me as a, because I was basically probably a, maybe like 16, 17 doing that. Wow. I know I had, um, I, and I was running like a Christian metal magazine. Um, it was like really crappy, but like, I'm not advertising it, but like, it was a, uh, uh, this magazine that I was doing. It was like right after I got out of high school. So I must've been like 17, 18, maybe whenever we did that. And the, but the perception of reality was like, I'd see you. Um, and I think sometimes Jason Sherlock would post on there and, uh, I did an interview with him, uh, I guess about seven, eight months ago. And that, that was awesome. He's beautiful human being. Um, but, uh, we, uh, 
but I remember being like, oh my God, like, like, like I could just send, I could send Luke Easter a message and be like, oh, he probably won't even respond to it or see it because, you know, those guys are huge and, you know, they've got this, like, and it's, it's so funny to think about that now, um, especially doing the podcast because like every now and again, like I'll get messages from people that are like, oh my God, I can't believe you responded back, you know? <laughs> and, um, I remember that, that just being so huge that you could talk to band members on, um, message boards. And it's funny now hearing you say like you were basically there doing damage control. <laughs> well, I, I, I was there cause I enjoyed it. You know, I, I liked the interaction. Um, but yeah, some of it was because, you know, it, it, there, there's a lot of drama attached to that band, you know, when you have um, that many ex members, I mean, it's bound yeah, to happen. You know, when, when you've got that kind of, of, uh, personality dynamic at play you know it's it's going to generate drama and so it wasn't so much damage control so much as it was you know i i like i like the interaction but this interaction also affords me the opportunity to to mitigate things if and when needed you know and i think what's i think what's the most what what was the most fun about that community is it really um mirrors Kind of, kind of like what Facebook is now. Um, yeah. You know, unfortunately, though, on Facebook, if I say something crazy, you know, like my name, my actual name is uh, <laughs> is attached to it. You know, so if I say something yeah. crazy, I have to be able to explain it or defend it or, or whatever. Um, but it's 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 interesting because uh, my wife all the time is always um, she'll scroll through pay- Facebook and she'll be all like. Oh, I can't believe these people are doing this or they're making this dumb argument or they're saying this or this, this. And I was like, it's been this way. Like, this is nothing new. Like yeah. I was, I was on message boards in the early two thousands. It was exactly this. You know? Yeah. But, uh, anyway, back to the band. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. So the, uh, so that record came out and then that was the last record you were on. Well, you were on the one song on, um, onward to freedom, which was a, basically yeah. just a, that's a cover. Record. Yeah, yeah, it was Ted's solo record. Yeah. Um, so, and yeah, and it was a cover song. Although I actually do enjoy hearing, because, um, you know, when I'm listening to something like that, and this is just my opinion, um, when I'm listening to something like that, whenever I finally got to that song, I was like, oh, man, finally, it sounds like Tourniquet, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, to, and you know, it was a song, a song that I knew already, but we never really had a studio version of you singing that song. So that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, I was like when I was cooking earlier and I was playing, I, I've got this like Bluetooth speaker in the kitchen and, um, I like leaned out and gave my wife this weird look and was like more feline fuel for the incinerator. Like it's, um, really dumb, but, uh, Anyway, so you, so you're, um, that was your last appearance in a tourniquet related project. And yes. then in, and so we didn't hear anything from you for a couple of years, but now you've got, um, in 2018, the pop disaster record, um, that I'm assuming, did you put that out yourself or? Yes, that was self-released. Okay. And, um, the thing that I found striking uh, about it, the most was that I was like, Oh my God, this, first of all, this is not as, um, intensely hardcore, you know, (laughs) like in the, in the sense that, uh, I really enjoyed hearing your, uh, melodic voice come out more on this uh, because I'm just, I'm just so used to hearing the gruff, you know, um, I'm in a metal band. And so it was fun hearing, um, 
hearing you sing in your con in that context. And I'm assuming that there had to have been a, a, a great deal of freedom for you as far as being able to be the creative force, uh, you know, behind the whole thing. I mean, it's nerve wracking because, you know, the part of being in a band is it's, you know, it's all of you. So, you know, if people love it, you, you all did it together. Um, you know, if, if, if you have a healthy perspective of things, um, and if people hate it, well, you did it together and you'll get through it together. Um, whereas with this, it was like, Hey, I have these ideas and I hope they don't suck. Right. You know, that, and, and honestly, that's, that's part of where the title came from. You know, um, the, I know that the easy play would have been to try and do a metal record. Um, but even if I'd done that, it would have probably just been those same songs or similar songs, but arranged so that they sounded metal. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. You know, Cause that what's on that record is how my brain works melodically. Um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm also, I wanted to make an honest record, but I'm also, you know, realistic enough to know that there was a very good chance that, uh, a lot of the, the tourniquet fans that I hoped were going to follow me into this new, you know, phase. Uh, I knew there was a good chance that they'd hate it, you know, cause it, it's so pop. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I figured oh, I'll just give it a tongue in cheek title and then they can say whatever they want, but it, you know, kind of takes the sting off it. Cause I like, ah, it doesn't matter what we say. Look what he called it, you know? Right. Uh, yeah, you're so, like, I, mean, I yeah, know. Of, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there, there was a lot of, of freedom, but at the same time, there was a lot of um, of Chris, my, my producer uh, slash musical partner in crime, uh, talking me off the ledge because I was overthinking things too much. Um, but all in all, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that record. It's the record I wanted to make. It's a record I'd wanted to make for a long time. And, uh, it was just, it was just fun. It was, it was cool to, you know, these songs that had, you know, either just lived in my head or that I had really rough demos of, you know, to hear them, you know, fully realized really cool. You know, I've got, uh, I've got David Bach from guardian. I've got Tim, uh, Tim Gaines, uh, from striper uh jesse sprinkle uh josiah prince you know I've, I've got all these really cool really talented people that uh i have a hundred other things that they could better spend their time on than playing on my record and they were all down they were all they were all in it and they uh they made it sound better than i i ever could have hoped well and it was refreshing for me um you know as i've talked earlier in 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 the interview about like Oh, I'm just a meathead. I just like heavy stuff. And I was mad at this song on Crawl of China because it wasn't heavy or whatever. Um, but like looking looking at what I do now, where I'm pretty much 24 seven listening to metal bands to perf to uh, to talk about on the show every single week. Um, I'm just really after three years, I'm very burned out on a lot of that stuff. <laughs> You know, and so whenever I put it in, you know, like it didn't or I'll, OK, put it in. What I really mean is I pulled it up on my phone and streamed it off of, you know, <laughs> off my streaming service. Um, but, uh, you know, whenever I, whenever I'm listening to it, I'm thinking like this is fun. It's 
honest. I think that was the thing that, that really stuck out to me is that it's it's fun, it's honest, and it's a it's a real represent, representation of you. And I, and what I like about it is that it's. Um, I think with, um, and I'm trying to say this again so that it doesn't sound negative, but I think, you know, coming from a band that was, uh, loved by fans like it was, like they were, um, you were, you know, certainly the voice of the band, whether you see it that way or not, um, you were the voice, but you know, maybe you weren't the, the main creative drive in the band so it was it was refreshing to listen to something that this is like this is all you we're getting an actual you know a picture of what's going on in your mind and you know your thoughts musically and um and that's that's what i found really refreshing about it was that it, it was a palate cleanser for me number one and um two i can listen to it in the car with my wife and kids and um they don't hate it <laughs> so that that's a big plus you know as much as they love listening to sepultura or whatever i decide to put on you know <laughs> when we're driving um and so yeah and i think it's uh it's i, I think it's fun and i guess the, you know i'd be remiss if i didn't ask what uh are, are you doing a follow-up are you doing anything you know with it do you have a new batch of songs that we haven't heard yet or i have about probably two-thirds of an album in various stages of development in my head. Okay. Um, so yeah, I am writing a follow-up. Um, I was actually, uh, I was uh, texting with Chris earlier today and uh, we're most likely, the, the plan at this point is to do a single just to kind of, you know, show proof of life and, and get something new out there and, use that as the springboard into uh, another full length, hopefully by the end of the year. Uh, but I mean, I've, I've been, you know, busy since then. I mean, I put out the pop disaster and then right on the heels of that, um, I decided I, I, I'm not a Christmas guy. Christmas is not a happy time in, in my life. Uh, it's, it's just always been kind of a downer. Um, but you know, it's like the perfect time to kind of throw out something that's, you know, a little bit different. Uh, and so we did last Christmas, uh, that from wham, uh, did it for a couple of different reasons. We did it partly just cause I like that song and somebody suggested, you know, I brought up, you know, it was out with Chris and some other friends. I'm like, I think I want to do a holiday single, which, you know, Chris was like, yeah, we could do that. What do you want to do before I could say anything? This other guy said, do last Christmas. I'm like, well, why don't we do last Christmas? Done. Yeah. Uh, you know, so we did it, but part of it too is, is I've got a, a, a really good friend, uh, whom I've known since I was in middle school and, uh, he's a writer. He's uh, a big, you know, pop culture guy. We geek out about, you know, like Dr. Who and comic books and Marvel movies and stuff. But, uh, he gets, he tends to get really worked up every year because people talk about last Christmas being a Christmas song. It's not. It's a song about a breakup that happened to take Christmas. Um, it's a diehard and Christmas movie. It's not a Christmas movie. It takes place at Christmas. There's a Christmas party in it. There, other than that, there's nothing about Die Hard that's Christmas. So <laughs> as much fun as it was to do Last Christmas, just because it's a great song, it was also fun to kind of backdoor it and, you know, as an afterthought, do it as a... a as poking my friend with a stick because I, I did the song and then I recut Die Hard 
into a lyric video, which is, is very challenging taking a, a movie. I think Die Hard is two hours, four minutes, maybe two hours, 10 minutes and cutting it down to just under four minutes right. and keeping the basic narrative structure, uh, intact, but still have it work with the beats of the song. Um, so that was fun. Uh, and it, it, I think it wound up my, my friend a little bit, but I, I did that. And then right on the heels of that, uh, Brian called, uh, Brian gray and the, the blame was doing a new record and uh, they were going to offer bonus tracks to backers. And so, uh, I was on a, I, I did a, a, a new version of one of their older songs. So, I mean, that was awesome to have things kind of come full circle, uh, after Brian being instrumental and pushing me toward, you know, the path that I wound up on and being able to work with him again, but also to be able to be on something that had, you know, the, the mighty Jim Chaffin, you know, playing on, I mean, Jim is, Jim is probably one of my top 10, you know, drummers, favorite drummers. Jim's awesome. You know, so uh, I've not been idle, uh, but uh, yeah, we're getting ready to, to probably start up the machine again and, uh, and start recording. Uh, at this point, it won't be as pop as the pop disaster. Uh, I kind of, uh, I, when I did the first record, it didn't make sense to me to just repeat myself and do what I'd been doing for the previous, you know, however many years it was like, well, if I'm going to do something solo, I should do something different. Um, and I've got these songs and they have this feel and I like this sound. So let's, let's make, you know, what for me is a, a pop record. I, I know it's, it's, it's still a rock record, but it's, it's not a metal record. It's not a hard rock record. Uh, the next one is shaping up. It'll probably be uh, not heavy. It won't be metal by any means, but it'll be uh, probably more of a, a commercial hard rock kind of record. I'll say not new wave. <laughs> <laughs> new wave needs to make yeah, a comeback. Don't tempt me. <laughs> I, I love me some Depeche Mode. I love Duran Duran. You know, maybe that'll be album number three. That's all I've been listening to lately. Has been has been uh, has been new wave stuff. Just because I just, dude, you can only take so many blast beats a month. You know, like yeah. <laughs> it just it, it it gets to you after a while. Well, and to, I mean, I I'm, I love metal. I'm a metal fan. But but like you said, I mean, at some point it does start getting really really samey. And it's not that there's no melody or anything, but I'd just like the melody to be maybe a little bit more gentle and a little bit more obvious. Right, right. You know, so yeah, like, you know, bring it on. Bring on bring on Taylor Swift. Bring on, you know, what I, I don't know. Bring on Paramore. Old Paramore, not the new Paramore. Yeah, yeah I was going to say. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Yeah, after, uh, oh, what was that record? After their, their third record, they're, they're dead to me. Oh, wow. Strong feelings. That's going to be well, that's going to be the quote for, for the episode. <laughs> Paramore is dead to me. Luke Easter says Paramore is dead to me. Yeah. <laughs> Paramore says who? Yeah. You got to come up with a real clickbaity title for the uh, <laughs> for the podcast. But uh, no, we don't do any of that crap. It's like <laughs> discuss metal episode, whatever you know. <laughs> Just go from there. But uh, very cool, man. Well, I I really appreciate you taking your time out. I know I, I took up like an hour and a half of your time tonight, and um, you were very gracious with it. And you answered a lot of questions that I had always had kind of as a tourniquet fan, you know. And um, 
and I'm happy. I'm happy to see that you're branched out on your own because, like, what it's like for a fan of a band when a when a vocalist you know is no longer in the band. Um, you know, you can continue on with that band, like that's fine. But I always get these questions in my head, like, am I ever going to hear this person sing new stuff ever again? You know, or am yeah. I ever going to, you know, and in a lot of cases you don't, you know, that's just, that's just it. And, um, so it's, it's refreshing to see that in 2020, I could still hear Luke Easter sing, um, even if it's not to metal, like whatever, you know, but well, because I, mean, I, I did, do, I did a, um, I did a vocal on a song for Gary Lanier last year as well. You know, like he just dropped the new record and, and we've been talking, we're probably going to do more stuff. So, you know, hopefully I can find some nice balance between, you know, doing metal on the side with, you know, other people's projects and, and just continue down, down my path, doing more of the pop rock thing, you know, um, I mean, it's worked for, you look at somebody like Butch Walker, you know, I mean, started out in hair bands and went on to, you know, they, he did seasons with, with, uh, seven dust and now look at him, Katy Perry and Taylor Swift and fallout boy and green day. You know, I, I don't, not saying that I would ever, you know, be necessarily, you know, be capable of, of that kind of achievement, but, uh, it's, it's a nice career to emulate. It's a nice, uh, it's a nice pattern for how to do business. Just, just, just follow the music. Just, you know, just be just there with people you like and do projects that, that interest you as they come up. You know, that's, that's kind of what I want to do. I, I love making music. Uh, I'll do it as long as I'm able. And as long as people are willing to listen, that's part of why I appreciate, you know, invitations like yours to, to be on your podcast. Uh, it trips me out that, you know, what is it? 25 years or whatever out from from pathogenic tour that people still have any interest in in me or, or what i have to say or what i'm doing and um i'll never take it for granted i'll never stop being thankful for it so thank you yeah no i definitely appreciate it and we um but yeah so yeah no all right joe i think we're gonna end the podcast there that's just for, for editing <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh i'm just gonna do like my thank yous and all that again and then um you know, Joe, you could just cut it after he says thank you, and then that's that's perfect. That's a better place to end it than anything I'm going to say. So he's going to send it back and be like, dude, yeah, Luke was awesome. What was up with you tonight? 